Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we will be looking at verses 27 to 32. Follow along as I read the text. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Starting on Thursday, our, much of our culture will begin celebrating Pride Month, and Target has already gotten ready for it, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> um, uh, Bud Light may not make it through June as it bleeds cash, um, but of course as Christians, we don't celebrate that, but we expose the wickedness of it and call sinners to repentance as Jesus did. Um, Luke, uh, if you listen to Ephesians chapter 5, we have a good, helpful way to think about this. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll read a little bit of a more lengthy section here, verses 1 to 14. You can follow along, relevant to this topic. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, after giving the gospel and indicating what the gospel is and what God has done in chapters 1 to 3, Paul now begins to instruct believers how they're to live in light of that. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. June will be a, a month of a mocking of the maker and a repurposing of the rainbow. Uh, people sometimes will say, and I've heard them say to me, uh, but I was born this way. And to that, you don't need to get into details and argue. You can just say, that's why you need to be born again. <laughs> um, and it's true. George Whitfield, someone came up to him once and said, why do you always say, you must be born again? And he said, in response, because you must be born again. <laughs> there you go. Simple. We come to a passage this morning where Jesus is addressing a man who would have been viewed by the religious leaders as one of the greatest sinners in his day, a tax collector. Now, during the month of June, there will be the celebration, pride in what God calls sin. Now, but there's another kind of pride as well, and it is that pride that would say that 
we're a good person, I'm a good person, and I don't need Christ, I don't need to repent, I'm okay with God. And that is the kind of pride that uh, Jesus is addressing here with the Pharisees as they would say, well, we're not like other sinners, we are different. And they're upset that Jesus is saving the, the worst of sinners in their minds. This passage has good news for all sinners. This is good news for Pride Month. This is the good news that Jesus came, the very purpose for which he came is to call sinners to repentance, to give them hope, to free them from a life of sin. Whatever the sin may be, however that sin may be viewed. But the only person Jesus did not come for is the righteous. That is, those who believe that they are righteous or those who do not see a need to repent of their sins. Jesus came to forgive sinners and to call them to repentance that they might acknowledge their sins. Jesus calls Levi, who's also known as Matthew. He's the author of the first gospel, gospel according to Matthew. So if I flip back and forth in my head, and just you, we're talking about the same person, Levi, Matthew. He was despised for his wickedness in Israel, and yet we are going to learn that we all have Levi genes. Levi genes, haha. <laughs> I wish I could claim that. I came up with that myself, but that's the title of our sermon, Levi genes. Actually, tell me it should be Levi's genes, I guess, but um, the point is we all share, not genes with a J, but with a G. We all share the same sin nature and condemnation from Adam that Matthew or Levi had. And so regardless of how Matthew or Levi was viewed in his day, all of us share that same condition. Yes, our sins may look different, they may manifest differently, but all of us have the same sin nature. We all have the same genes. We all have the same need of forgiveness. And that is exactly why Jesus came. Christ is the great physician, and he came for sin-sick sinners. And so the degree, to the degree that a person recognizes their condition, they are either able to come to Christ or not. And of course, we, what we mean by that is those who fail to acknowledge their sin, they cannot be saved. Only those who are bad people and know it can be saved. Jesus didn't come for good people. He came for bad people. We've been looking at this section where Jesus' authority is demonstrated in many ways. His authority over demons, we saw, over disease, those who are diseased, over the disabled, and now the despised, the despised in society that he can forgive. And as we look at this passage, we will see five features of gospel ministry modeled by Jesus. Five features of gospel ministry in the life of Jesus. The first we'll see is the call of the Savior. The call of the Savior. Gospel ministry involves the call of the Savior. Verse 27, look there. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Meet Levi. He has a Jewish name. He, that's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet his profession, his job, indicates his betrayal to his Jewish heritage. As we said, Levi is also known as Matthew. But what was a tax collector? Really, you will not appreciate this passage without an understanding of a tax collector. Now, don't just think about, you know, the IRS or whatever. There really were two categories of tax collectors in the first century in Rome. There was a tax collector, one category, that would collect taxes for land or income tax. Uh, they were probably uh, not loved, but they weren't as hated as the second category, of which Matthew was a part. The second, second category was uh, despised because of their taxation on just about everything. Uh, some documents show that Rome had over 90 uh, taxes, various things. They could tax just about everything that you could have. Matthew, or Levi, is in this category. It, it's really kind of an early pyramid scheme. 
a tax collector would buy a franchise from Rome and to collect taxes. They call it tax farming. And so there's a, there's a region over which Rome wants taxes collected. And so the highest bidder could buy a franchise to have the rights to tax that area. And so what that person would do who bought that, bought that franchise, at the beginning of the year, they would pay Rome the total amount of taxes that Rome demanded from that area. And so they'd just write a check, pay them, and then throughout the rest of the year, the tax collector would gather those taxes. And so they would kind of like, they would need to make their money back, so to speak, through the year. Now, Rome had a, a number that they wanted, and the tax collector would pay them. But uh, there, there wasn't a, a lot written down as to, or, or a lot of accountability, so these tax collectors over a certain region could inflate costs and taxes, and if they collected a little bit more than Rome wanted, well, they'd already cut their check to Rome, so whatever was extra was just icing on the cake for them. It was just extra money for them. Now, what would happen in this kind of pyramid scheme was this, this one at the top who cut the check to Rome would then hire out others underneath them. And some of those would hire out others underneath them so that you would have maybe, you've got this whole region and then the, the tax collector hires out a number of others to maybe you divide an area into 10 and then one of those 10 hires a guy for each street corner to collect taxes at the tax booth. And so that's kind of what you have going on in, uh, throughout Israel during this time as Rome is taxing them. One writer said this, these tax collectors would sit beside bridges, canals, or state roads to collect their fees. Extortion is the only word to describe the second group. The Roman government offered these positions to the highest bidder. And once that bid was accepted and paid, the collector was free to charge the passerby whatever amount he chose. Seldom would a toll tax collector post any set regulations or fees. The ambiguity allowed him to overcharge at will. In extreme cases, collectors would demand up to 1,000% of the average rate. Tax collectors were lumped with thieves, harlots, murderers. They're the dregs of society, the deplorables of the land. And to be a Jew and do this was extra wicked because you had betrayed your own countrymen. It's likely that Levi had taxed the other apostles who were from this region before he was converted. And so he's likely probably the most wealthy of the 12 as well. And so maybe they ribbed him for that. Maybe not, I don't know. Uh, tax collectors could not serve as witnesses in court and were excommunicated from the synagogues. You couldn't have a witness. It would be a bad move to call to the witness stand a tax collector because they were so discredited in society. Now, think about this. Okay, so you have the, the head honcho and they would hire out others underneath them to collect taxes. So which one is Matthew? So, so you have the two categories, the main one, and then these, these ones who would kind of collect tax on just about everything. Matthew's in that second category. But, but you see the, the leader, the ringleader, um, the mob boss hiring out other people, or is he one of these lesser guys? He's one of the lesser guys. He, he's on a street corner. He's got his, his tax booth collecting. Now, it's very likely, though, that Zacchaeus, in chapter 19 of Luke, is one of these main tax collectors. He has cut the check to Rome, and he has a lot more uh, oversight, and it's likely it's, it's not that Zacchaeus hired Matthew, but that's the idea that he, he would have had people underneath of him, whereas Matthew maybe didn't have anyone underneath him. He was maybe at the lowest on the totem pole, and yet still made lots of money uh, through these, these means. And so that, that's Matthew. We'll look at Zacchaeus later, um, in a few years, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but we learned that Levi's business, when we look at the other gospel accounts, was located in Capernaum. So Jesus has uh, just healed this paralytic man, and now he comes out of that home, and he finds Levi collecting taxes at work, busy there. Jesus makes a beeline to one of the most despised sinners in this town and gives him the most simple message Follow me. Quit your job, Levi, and leave your life of sin to follow me. 
Now, Levi had no doubt heard about Jesus, maybe even heard Jesus preach. If he hadn't heard Jesus preach, which would be surprising, as Jesus was doing lots of ministry in Capernaum, then no doubt he would have heard from others the message that Jesus is preaching, and the stir there was almost impossible to, uh, to not know what was happening in Capernaum at this time. Jesus is healing diseases, casting out demons. And of course, Matthew uh, is interacting with just about everyone in Capernaum because he's the tax collector. In fact, you would get taxed on just about everything, things that you planted, things that you, animals that you had, and you think, well, how would Rome know that you had those things to be able to tax you on those? Because the tax collectors lived among you, and they would rat you out. Oh, what you doing there? You run in at Home Depot, and you buy some stuff to, to plant on Memorial Day, and they're like, oh, what do you got in your cart there? Okay, I see that. And, you know, and then they'd tell on you, and you know, that you, you have to pay taxes for those things, extra taxes. So, this is how it worked. And so no doubt, Levi is aware of what's happening with Jesus. And so he's heard the message, but he hasn't had an interaction with Jesus, a personal interaction. And now Jesus comes to him, and he goes right up to him and says, follow me. And notice a number of features of this call of God, this call of Christ. Number, number one, the call was initiated by Christ. Uh, Levi wasn't searching out for Jesus he was contented in his sin, collecting his taxes, defrauding people. Remember what John the Baptist said, by the way, when some tax collectors came to him and were wanting to repent of their sins? And he said, what shall we do? And John the Baptist said, don't collect more taxes than you ought to, which implies that was common for the tax collectors to do, to defraud people. And so, he tells him, Jesus comes to him and he initiates this. Think of the passage, we love because he first loved us. Right? We were dead in sin. We, we, we weren't coming to God. God came to us, called us to himself. The call also invites the most despised. And you'd be hard pressed in Capernaum to find a worse sinner than Levi in the eyes of the people. The call also implies repentance from sin. And in calling Matthew to follow him, He's calling him to leave tax collecting. Now, it probably took all of five seconds for Rome to find a replacement for Levi when he left his booth. There were probably others underneath Matthew just chomping at the bit, waiting to take over this franchise or this, this booth and begin to collect money. And so it wasn't the kind of thing where Matthew could say, you know, I'm just going to take a couple months off and try this Jesus thing and and I'll come back, guys, uh, and tell his, his boss that. No, you leave, you're done. And so he is calling him to leave his profession, which is so tied to his sin. And he's to, to repent. It also involves following Jesus. This is a call to continue to follow Jesus in an ongoing way. So this is the call of God. As we'll see in, in this next point, that the call is effectual. And Levi does follow. So this is the call of the Savior. And gospel ministry involves calling sinners to follow Jesus. It just so happens that here, Jesus is the one doing the calling. And so this is what it's about. It's about finding sinners and calling them to leave their sin, to follow after Christ, to trust in Christ, and then in an ongoing way to begin to follow him. Of course, it's not our following that saves us. It's, it's God who saves us and puts us on the path to following Christ. Our lives are evidence that we've been saved by a continual following after Christ. So this is the call of the Savior. Notice, secondly, the commitment to the Savior. A gospel ministry involves a commitment to the Savior in verse 28. How did Matthew respond? It's simple. Very, very simple, uh, condensed and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Nothing long, drawn out, so simple. He be, he, the idea is that he left everything, he got up, and he began to follow him. It's this idea that it's something he did in the past, but it has, it's, it's ongoing. It, it's a past action that's ongoing. He began to follow Jesus. He quit. He had to make a break with his former life to follow Christ. They were incompatible. 
Now, clearly, we shouldn't read too much into this. I mean, Levi didn't sell his house, right, because he has a party really shortly after that, right? He didn't give all of his money away, but he left his job. He quit that. It wasn't like the fishermen who they left their nets and they followed Jesus, but later they could come back and start fishing again. Matthew, he was done. He, he couldn't go back to this job anymore. But he leaves his sin behind to follow Christ. Another writer says this, quote, this was the life he left behind to follow Jesus. Matthew turned from his wickedness. He forsook his lying, extortion, and love of money. He could not come to Christ and remain at his booth. Jesus demanded a decisive break. Either choose the booth, exploit others for gain, and die in sin, or leave it all behind. Receive forgiveness, be reconciled to God. And Matthew chose to abandon his post. This is the cost of discipleship. This is the commitment Jesus demands. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, can't wait to get here. <laughs> Luke chapter 9, verse 23 And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 59. Verse 57, rather. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. The idea is that let me wait for my father to die so I can collect my inheritance and then I'll follow you. This guy's dad most likely hadn't just died that day. Uh, it's the idea is he wants to wait for his father to die to collect his inheritance. Verse 60, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Chapter 18, verse 22 Jesus speaking to the rich ruler, he says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And Jesus put his finger on this man's sin, on his idol. See, those who are effectually called will hear and respond immediately to the message. This is the, that distinction we've pointed out before of the effectual call and the external call, Right? External call goes out. It's what I'm doing now. Repent, believe in Christ, uh, abandon your sin, uh, appropriate Christ by faith to have your sins forgiven. Do it now. Right? That's the external call. It has, doesn't have the power within itself to create what it calls for, right? But the effectual call, the call of God, the call of the Spirit of God, as the word goes forth, is effectual, it accomplishes what it sets out to do, right? If, if a quarterback tries to throw a pass, he intends for it to be caught. If it, it's caught, if it's received, then it's effectual, right? If it's dropped, it was non-effectual, right? That's the idea. It accomplishes what it sets out to do. And that's what the call of Christ here is. It's effectual because he calls Matthew and Matthew immediately follows. Now what's amazing when you contrast the Pharisees and scribes with Matthew is that they had studied the scriptures, heard the scriptures, heard the scriptures taught for years. They had heard the external call. Of course, maybe you would say, well, maybe it was corrupted in some ways, no doubt. But they had heard the scriptures time and again, and yet they'd never experienced the internal call, the the effectual call. Matthew much less, no doubt, in the profession he has, he has heard much less of the external call. But when he hears the effectual call, he comes immediately. He comes that moment. We've, we've likened it to this, that the external call is like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Wah, 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 wah. Right? It's like, that's what it sounds like. It, you understand the words, yes, but 
it's just, it has no effect upon you. It doesn't do anything. But when the Holy Spirit, when Christ, through his Spirit, gives the effectual call, people respond. People respond. Matthew heard, Matthew followed. This is what it takes for a sinner to follow Christ. It's not within them to say, you know what, I think I'm gonna make a change. I'm gonna turn over and I'm gonna start following Christ. No, to overcome the love for sin requires this effectual call to speak light into the heart, to grant life to a dead heart so that one might hear the call and respond to it to find Christ more valuable than anything else. J.C. Ryle says this in light of Matthew's coming. He says, quote, we must never despair of anyone's salvation so long as he lives. After reading a case like this, we must never say of anyone that he is too wicked or too hardened or too worldly to become a Christian. No sins are too many or too bad to be forgiven. No heart is too hard or too worldly to be changed. He who called Levi still lives and is the same that he was 1,800 years ago. With Christ, nothing is impossible. Amen, we need that, res- we need that reminder. I don't know about you, sometimes I get intimidated by certain sinners <laughs> uh, or certain people. Sometimes it's those who seem more intellectual and I'm like, ah, they're not gonna believe, they're gonna, it's not gonna work on them. I'm like, Robert, you fool, I mean, the hammer of the word can smash any unbelief and bring effectually a sinner to himself. So we have to get over this thought that, uh, I don't know about sharing the gospel with them. They just seem too hardened. They seem like Levi, right? That's what we're saying. No one wanted to go to Levi and share the gospel with him, but Christ makes a beeline to Levi. One who, no one would think this guy would come to faith. It's a reminder that if, if he can call Levi, he can call anyone. Sinners beware. <laughs> Sinners beware. If Christ wants to call you to himself, you will come. You will come. And so may that encourage us in, in our efforts. Matthew Henry said, There is no heart too hard for the spirit and grace of Christ to work upon, nor any difficulties in the way of a sinner's conversion inseparable to his power. It leads us also to ask the question, are you following Christ? Have you experienced the effectual call as Levi has? Not only have you heard the gospel explained, but, but you have come to see the glory of Christ. You've forsaken your sin and, and taken hold of Christ by faith. Maybe so. This is the commitment to the Savior. Gospel ministry involves a commitment to the Savior, following after him. Third, we see the celebration of the Savior. The celebration of the Savior. I mean, what would ministry be if it weren't a celebration of Christ and the work he has done? It would be dull. But no, it is, a, it is a joyful ministry, a joyful celebration of what Christ has done. Look at verse 29. Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. I mean, Levi is an excitement of leaving his former life and now knowing Christ. He has a party. And converted people celebrate. They are joyful. Not only are the angels in heaven celebrating when a sinner repents, but sinners on earth are celebrating when they have been freed from their sin. But notice the text. This party was for Jesus. It says, Levi made him a great feast. He has this great party for Jesus. He is so excited to know Christ now that he makes him a great feast. He would call me. He would call me to himself. And you, you know Levi had money. This was quite the party. He is no doubt a wealthy man in this area. And he invites his friends to the party as well. And who are Levi's friends? Well, if everyone else despises him in town... Who's left? It's the worst. I mean, these are the dregs of society, the deplorables. I mean, other tax collectors, yes, but who goes along with tax collectors? I mean, it's those who are 
their muscle as well to, to get money out of people. I mean, just, these are the worst of the worst, the worst society in Capernaum because no one else wants to associate with them. But who else does Matthew know? Who else does Levi know? These are his people up to this point. Here's what I love, and I'm reminded by this passage of newly converted sinners are often some of the most passionate people for sharing the gospel. But not only that, they have the most contacts still with unbelievers. You know, sometimes it can happen that the longer you're a Christian, that you just, maybe you don't have as many relationships with unbelievers that you normally pass with. Of course, maybe you do at your work. I mean, my work, uh, the other two elders are believers, you know, <laughs> it's like, so they better be, right? Uh, but, um, but that can happen. And Levi, though, it's like he probably doesn't know another believer. I mean, he knows Jesus, and maybe he started to meet some others who are following him, but he, he knows all these people. And so he just does what's natural to him. Hey, let me, these guys got to hear this too. So he has this party and they're reclining together. All these unbelievers, converted people want others to be converted. After getting saved, a believer wants their friends and family to know the truth as well. And saved sinners tell other sinners about the Savior. In John chapter one, during the first week of Jesus' public ministry, in John 1, verse 40, this is day four of Jesus' first week of public ministry. This is one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so they're just telling each other, they, hey, you gotta, get, you gotta see this. You gotta meet this guy. And then John chapter four, verse 29, the woman at the well, she goes home. Verse 29, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. This is what happens. Those who've come to know Christ are excited. They're joyful. They want to celebrate their new life in Christ with others. Everything makes sense now. The world makes sense. The worldview clicks into place. And they see what they once were and where their friends still are and they want to see them brought out of that because they love them. Ryle says again, it is about this celebration the believer has. He says, it is a far more important event than being married or coming of age, or being made a nobleman, or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. I mean, this is something worth celebrating. Forgiven sinners celebrate freedom from their sin. They no longer glory in their shame, but they now glory in their Savior. Now, Matthew, who is Levi, will write in his gospel, in chapter 13, he'll record one of the parables of Jesus, or two of the parables that are very similar, in Matthew 13, verse 44. I think Matthew probably had a, a special affection for this parable. In Matthew 13, verse 44, he writes, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
Matthew had left everything to have the treasure of Christ. It, he didn't stumble upon it. Jesus came upon him. And he realizes that Jesus is that treasure, that pearl of great price. This man who had been searching for money and possessions his whole life now is find a possession greater than anything he searched for. And he's come to see that Jesus is that treasure. And it says that this man in his joy forsook all to follow Christ. That's what Matthew did. He is so excited. He is not upset to leave his former life of sin. He has found something far better. And so he celebrates and he wants to celebrate Jesus and he wants to have others celebrate with him. Maybe he's like, I'm not exactly sure how to do this share the gospel thing, but hey, wouldn't you love it if you could just like have a party, invite, you know, all of your coworkers and, and invite Jesus to the party? Like the ultimate bait and switch, you know, like, hey, come, you know, it's like, look, it's the Messiah is here, you know. Um, you know, sometimes people like, I don't tell them I'm a pastor if I've never met them like right away, but they'll be like cursing or saying stuff. And, and then they find out later I'm a pastor and they apologize to me. As if like I am the arbiter, you know, it's like, hey, God already heard you say all these things, you know, so I don't know if you know that, but, uh, um, but uh, how much more so, you know, having the Messiah there, Jesus, of course, was not participating with these sinners in their sin. He was with them, but he was calling them to repentance at this party, interacting with them. Of course, that's probably what Matt, no, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating, dangerous territory, I know. I mean, hey, guys, thanks for coming. This is what God has done in my life. Jesus, tell them. <laughs> like, and, and Jesus, I mean, can't you imagine Matthew would do something like that and give Jesus the opportunity to speak? Of course. The celebration of the Savior. This is what ministry is all about. But then we see that no doubt ministry is going to involve complaints. It's going to involve complaints. The complaint about the Savior. We should expect it. The complaint about the Savior in verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now they're not invited to the party. Maybe they were. I don't know. Probably not. And they don't go to the party. They wouldn't have gone to this party. They would have been defiled by this. Now, it's interesting. They don't address Jesus directly. They go to his disciples. I mean, I don't know how this went. Maybe uh, the party kind of moved out into the yard a little bit and is expanding. And uh, they, they find someone on the fringes. Or maybe this is after. And they come up to one of the, Jesus' disciples. Hey, what are you guys doing? Why, why are you doing this? Hey, if you keep hanging out with this guy, your reputation is going to be tarnished. I mean, he's been with tax collectors. Are you kidding me? And this is part of their objection. They didn't go to this party and they're offended that Jesus and his disciples did. The text says that they grumbled. They grumbled. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word used for Israel grumbling in the wilderness. And it's a fun way. It's, an, it's a fun word. It's a, an onomatopoetic word. Uh, Egeguzon. It actually sounds like what it is. You know, if you're grumbling, that's what it sounds like. So, you know, if you're helping your kids not to grumble, you can be, hey, quit, quit, you know. And that's what it is. And that's what they're doing here. They're upset. They're grumbling. One writer said this, their concern was that godly folks shouldn't expose themselves to such circles, to such contamination. But Jesus might say, yes, but they need to be exposed to me. To eat with certain people demonstrated your acceptance of them. And so Jesus is offending them. But of course, Luke chapter 7, verse 34, we read, A son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this is like the worst diss they could come up with. Look at this guy. It's a friend of tax collectors, <laughs> you know, sinners. I mean, this is the worst. This is like their insult. It's like kids on the playground. And like, you know, no, you are. No, you are. It's like, what is the worst insult you could come up with? And he's like, you tax collector, you friend of tax collectors. You know, that, that's what they're saying. That's the reputation Jesus is getting. Luke chapter 15, verse two. And the Pharisees said 
The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I think this is um, sometimes a college student's favorite uh, verse because they're like, yeah, I need to be hanging out in the bars and drinking with the sinners and, you know, to, to kind of be like Jesus. He's like, well, okay, don't take this too far. I mean, Jesus is with them and he's calling them to repentance. You know, far too often interacting with some with that logic. Uh, okay, so who have you shared the gospel with? Who have you called to repentance? Well, I'm getting there, right? I'm getting there. It's like, no, Jesus is, of course, there's just something to be said about building relationships with people, but, but what is Jesus' intent here? It is to call these people to repentance, to call them out of their sin to know the Savior. These Pharisees are offended by the scandal of grace. Paul said in Romans, Jesus died for the ungodly. Why? Because those are the only kind of people there are. Ungodly people. And no matter what, the gospel is going to offend. It is going to offend. A non-offensive gospel is a non-saving gospel. We don't want to go out of our way to offend for silly things. That when we make the main thing the main thing, you can expect there to be offense. When the true gospel is, of grace is preached, it is going to offend those who are outside of Christ. And we should also expect that sometimes that offense will come from those who say that they are religious. From some who say that they are a part of the church. And they will be offended by the message of grace. They'll be offended by the gospel and what it entails. And the kinds of sinners that it calls to repentance. That's the, that's the offense that these Pharisees have. But that is the, the gospel of grace. The scandal of it. That God would save people like this. These men had been working their lives to be fastidious about the law, believing that they had somehow gained favor with God as a result. And they were to find out through Jesus' ministry, it counted for nothing. And Jesus would save those who had given their lives over to sin, had no regard for the law of God, and yet God calls them in an instant, they're forgiven, and they're called into his circle. How offensive. And so we expect there to be complaints about the Savior and about when, when rightly understood, that is. People are happy with a Jesus in their own making, a Jesus they've concocted. You'll see that, oh, but Jesus wouldn't, Jesus didn't, Jesus wouldn't, and you go, show me, what, where's the verse that, that says that, that he didn't do that, that he didn't say that? Didn't Jesus believe all the scriptures? Didn't he believe the scriptures of his day, the Old Testament? You can't get around Jesus you can make up stuff that he said and did, but when you look at the text, here he is. You cannot ignore him, and he will offend. There'll be complaints. The complaint about the Savior, verse 30, which then leads, of course, naturally to the clarification by the Savior. The clarification by the Savior in verse 31. Verse 31 and 32. Here Jesus explains his purpose, the purpose of gospel ministry. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus addresses their complaint, even though they didn't address it directly to him. It's like he steps in to speak for the disciples. They're trying to figure stuff out still, and so Jesus steps in. And in so doing, he clarifies the purpose for which he came. And here we have a clear statement of why the eternal son of man, the eternal son became man. This language of coming, I did not come. This coming language speaks to Jesus' eternality, that he is the one sent from the father, sent by the father. And here's why he came, to call sinners to repentance. Yet he, he begins with a clarification that is an illustration Jesus, the master illustrator, always able to speak to the common person. In essence, says those who are healthy do not need to go to the doctor. How simple. I mean, yeah, you might get a well checkup, but um, I went to the doctor a couple years ago. 
to get a well checkup. And I don't think I had been to the doctor for like 15 years before that. They were like, when was your last appointment? And I was like, I don't know, I have no idea. I mean, I'm very thankful to the Lord for that. That's not the case for everyone. But I'm just saying, I just didn't even cross my mind, right? Those who don't see a need, those who are, are not healthy or not, uh, not sick at that point, they don't go to the doctor. And that's very, very evident. But what is Jesus trying to say to them? Of course they understand that. But he's trying to explain why he would go to this party, why he would be there. He's saying, isn't it very normal for a doctor to be with sick people? I mean, it's 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 a strange profession to go into if you are a germaphobe, right? It's like to, to become a doctor. I don't want to be around sick people. No, you go into that because you, maybe there's other reasons, but, but one of the reasons is you want to help people who are sick. And when people find out they're sick, they seek out the best doctors they can afford. There's a desperation that disease brings. Jesus seems to have irony in what he's saying. I have not come to call the righteous. I think he seems to be implying that the Pharisees are the righteous ones. Hey, you guys, don't worry. I didn't come for you guys. You're good. You're good. You guys are righteous. So move along. I don't have anything to say to you guys. You got it figured out. I think that's what he's saying. He's calling them righteous, but he doesn't think that they're actually morally righteous. He knows their hearts. He's going to call them out. He knew there were were none righteous. Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. The issue is they do not see themselves in need of repentance and righteousness. Luke 15.7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Righteous people don't need repentance. They don't need to repent. Why? Because they're righteous already. He's not saying that there are inherently righteous people. He's saying, if you think you're righteous, you don't need to repent. You don't need the gospel. You're fine. Are you in fact righteous? No. But that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to undermine their false assurance. He wants to wake them up to their true condition. And Jesus came for the sick, for those who recognize it. Now, I think that if we were to think about our own context, I think still in the area of our country where there's been lots of churched people, that there is many who are secure when they ought not to be. They feel no need for Christ. They've grown up in church. They, they, they made a decision for Christ early, and I might say that they've been inoculated to the gospel, to the true gospel message. And I think that there are some in our context who the application of this would be flipped for what Jesus is doing. For the Pharisees, the ultra-righteous, so to speak, are greatly offended that Jesus would be saving what they considered to be the worst of sinners in their society. But I don't think that's so much the concern that people would have today. I think people today, in our context that is, in our context here, there would be more people, I think, that would say, well, yeah, of course Jesus came to save sinners and bad people, but it would be the offense that Jesus would, would not save good people. That Jesus would not save good people. And what I mean by that is, when we're saying good, we're qualifying it by saying people that seem good to us. Like that Jesus would save someone who is, in our minds, the most wicked person and has no regard for, for God debased life, and God saves them and calls them out of that. But the person who came to church, they're a hard worker, they sacrificed so much for their family, and, you know, they, they did all these good things, they were the best neighbor you could have, and they go to hell because they didn't truly know Christ. They hadn't truly repented of their sin, but they were a good person. And we go, how is that okay? How can that person who, who yes, I know they haven't affirmed Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they're such a good person and we want to make room for them. We want to make exception for them and say, man, how is that okay? And so it's it's like flip for us because sometimes we go, 
This is the scandal of the gospel. This is the scandal of grace. That you have to be a bad person to be saved. You have to be bad. You have to see your wickedness. Only those who come to see that they are not righteous are in the place where they can receive the righteousness of Christ. So when you share the gospel, we have to focus on sin. The gospel is not primarily about what is often offered to unbelievers. Sin is the issue. The unbeliever must be convicted of sin. And that is what the law in part does. It condemns the sinner. It holds a mirror up and says, you've fallen short. Here's what you look like. Here's the standard. You fail. 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10. And thereby it leads to Christ. For Israel, the law of Moses led them like a tutor, holding their hand to bring them to the Messiah. That that this law is meant to bring you to embrace the Messiah. The disease of sin of which we need to be cured is impacting both of body and soul. It, It impacts all of us. It is internal and manifests itself externally. Jesus says, for from within, come, all these wicked, wicked things. Matthew 15. It is incurable. Jeremiah 17. We are incurably sick, desperately sick. It is inherited. Psalm 51. In iniquity did my mother conceive me. And it's intensified by bad company. Bad company corrupts good morals. This is the disease we have. We all, like we said, have Levi genes. We all share the same condemnation in Adam. We're polluted by sin. And so therefore, you are never too bad to be saved. But you might be too good to be saved. Jesus was with sinners, but not to affirm them, but to call them to repentance. Have you repented of your sin? Acknowledged it honestly with God, not hiding it, bringing it to him, and resting, receiving Christ. You call other sinners to repent of their sin. It is the beginning of Luke's gospel and the end of Luke's gospel, the message of repentance. You said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And repentance is a gift from God. Luke will tell us in volume two, in the book of Acts, chapter five, Acts chapter five, verse 31. He says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to grant to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is a gift from God. Levi is also known as Matthew, and Matthew means gift of God. How amazing. He changes his name to Matthew because he receives the gift of repentance and faith. Jesus went out of his way to save and forgive Levi, the most detestable sinner. False religion requires you to be good. True religion requires you to be bad, to be saved. And until you are, until you see yourself as bad, you cannot be saved. If God can forgive a man like Matthew, like Levi, he's willing to forgive anyone. If God can forgive a man like Paul, he can forgive anyone. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I think Matthew would say, amen, amen. My life, God saved me to be an example to others that he's patient and willing to forgive even them because he saved me. He saved a wretch like me. Pride Month celebrates that which God hates. And we said there's another pride that refuses to see oneself in need of God's grace. We want nothing to do with either. We don't want to celebrate sin. We also don't want to have a false assurance that we're okay when we're not. I'm not as bad as another person. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. It matters where you stand before the righteous standard of God, the perfect standard. Let's not forget our need that Jesus reminds the church in Laodicea, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let's look at one more passage before we close in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Here's our situation, Pharisee, tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus saves a tax collector. And wouldn't you know, in the next chapter, Jesus doesn't just tell a parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. Chapter 19, he goes to Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, and he saves him. He comes to him and once again initiates that and he saves this great sinner. I can fix a paper cut if you cut your finger, I'll just clean it up, put a Band-Aid on it. But surely you wouldn't call me a great physician for doing something like that. So common. But when we see a surgeon who can cut someone in half, basically, remove organs, put new organs in, sew them back up, and that person can be walking again after some recovery, we go, wow, what a great doctor. What a great physician. And that's what we see here. The great physician who can heal the most despised in society, the most wicked, the hardest cases. Let me tell you, friend, you have the worst sickness of all. Sin has killed you spiritually, and sin will kill you physically and eternally. It is a terrible disease, the king of terrors. But I know the best doctor. You can't afford him but he'll take you on nevertheless. Listen to what Spurgeon said, and we'll conclude here. He said, if anyone asks, what is his diploma? It is here. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. God the Father sent him to heal sin-sick souls. Where did he study? He studied in the great hospital of human disease. For 33 years, he went about doing good. What practice has he had? He has had the most extensive practice that a physician could have. Millions of happy souls above have been cured by him. And millions here on earth have also been healed by him. And all of them will gladly speak his praises. If you want to know what his medicine is, I may tell you that he has two medicines. This is one. He sent his word and healed them. His word of promise, his word of invitation, his word of command. But he has also another medicine, that is his own blood. Unlike other physicians who give bitter potions to their patients, the great physician drank all the medicine himself. But you will ask, what is his fee? He gives healing without money and without price. You may ask, where is his dispensary? To every creature under heaven who trusts him, Christ presents a free and complete cure. And you will ask, what are his hours? Any hour and every hour, by night or by day. But you will say, where can I find him? Just wherever you are sitting or standing now, you can find him if you will but breathe this prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you trust him with your soul, then the honor of this great physician is engaged to make a sure and certain cure of you. Amen. Father, thank you for sending your son.
and for sending him to call sinners to repentance. We freely acknowledge our sin and we continue to turn from it as you bring it to mind. We thank you for a full and true forgiveness that is found in him. We thank you for the compassion of the Lord Jesus to seek out sinners and to turn them out of the way of their sin into following you. Lord, help us to continue to follow you, to continue to find you to be that treasure that first drew us, that we would continue to come to you. Lord, may we be the gospel people. May we be those who speak out the joy of the saving work in our lives to those around us. May it just exude from us. May it be natural for us to speak about the glories of Christ and that we would see others come to know you. No one is outside the reach of your saving power. May that encourage us in our efforts, Lord, to serve you in this world. Bring sinners to yourself. Remove the deception of sin from them that they might come to see and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.